And we're going to spend this whole quarter just looking at events in his life because David has what I think might be the absolute best title in Scripture. It has nothing to do with him as a king. It's that title that we can read about in Acts chapter 13 where he is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Actually, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 13 with me, I want us to begin there here in just a moment. Because it's in the midst of a sermon that, that, is, that Paul is presenting uh, in Pisidian Antioch at the synagogue where he's going to make reference to David. And it's verses 21 and 22 in particular where he's giving this little bit of history and he makes this statement about David, Acts chapter 13, verse 21 and 22. Paul says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he, referring to God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. You know, there's a lot of great titles that men receive in Scripture. You, you have um, Abraham referred to as a friend of God. You have some great titles assigned to men in Scripture. But David receives this title a man after God's heart. Is there a better title in all of Scripture? That's essentially God's way of saying, this is what you should look like. This, this is someone who, whose life is so aligned with me that they are modeling what I want. David receives this beautiful title, and it's so fascinating to me. Because David's only human. Consider the fact that David's life wasn't perfect. David had multiple wives. In fact, his first wife is technically a failed marriage. He had some horrible children. One of his sons, a son named Amnon, committed one of the vilest acts in all of Scripture. And another of his sons rebelled against him and tried to take his throne from him. He had immoral and rebellious children who caused his family great distress. Think about this. David is partially responsible for Uzzah's death during the transport of the Ark of the Covenant, and he's fully responsible for a pestilence that took the lives of 70,000 people because he decided to conduct a census. And of course... He's responsible for one of the most notorious sins in all of Scripture when he had an affair with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up. And yet this is the guy that God looks at and says, I have found in David a man after my heart. Despite all of that negative publicity that comes from his life in Scripture, he's still the guy that God says, I have found a man after my own heart. Why? Why is it that David gets such credit from the Lord when his life has all of those negative aspects to it? That's kind of the objective of this class, for us to spend our time studying his life and seeing what God saw in him so that we can imitate that ourselves. 
uh, but before we dive too deep into David's life, we need to do a little bit of background. We need to understand the situation that David is being introduced into in Israel before we can fully wrap our minds around his own life. So what I want to start off with is a little bit of background regarding kingship in Israel. So if you turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 8, we'll be there in just a moment. And we're going to spend a lot of time working our way through about five or six chapters of 1 Samuel today. Did I say 1 Kings? I meant 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be working through several chapters uh, kind, of, kind of chronologically here for just a moment. So go ahead and go to 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, to understand why David is called a man after God's own heart, we actually have to venture back 40 years before he becomes a king. We have to examine the selection and circumstances that surrounded the appointment of the first king of Israel to begin with. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he initially led them utilizing individuals such as Moses and Joshua. And then he made the transition to the, those individuals that we called judges. And we spent a good bit of time on Sunday nights uh, late last year talking about the different judges. And these were individuals that God raised up to rescue and deliver and save his people for numerous years. People like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and Deborah, they functioned as judges during the days after Joshua and before there was ever a king in the land. And the last individual to operate as a judge is Samuel. He's the last one that is associated with that title and fulfilled that role. Now, when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel's an old guy. He's an aged man, and the height of his popularity, the, the, the time period of his life when he subdued the Philistines and wisely judged the nation of Israel, that was kind of in his rear view. He's in retirement mode. And so he decides to do something. He decides to um, uh, initiate his retirement by appointing some other judges. So we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel's looking at retirement, and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my, my kids judges. They're going to be the ones who, who take the mantle from me. The problem with this is that his kids weren't nearly as righteous as he was. His kids didn't care about God the way he did. They didn't care about justice like he did. And so it became evident to all the people that this is a bad move. You, one thing you need to understand is that when it came to the judges, the good judges were always guys that God raised up, the text would say. Not guys that got it for themselves. Samuel's appointing the, his sons, but not under the um, direction of God here. That's part of the problem is he's not using, there's no use of God's standards or, or, or God's directions for this, these appointments. It's just, 
Samuel making a decision and passing it down to his kids. And his kids weren't like him. And so the people are complaining. They are upset at these appointments because these guys are taking bribes. These guys are, are doing everything financially for their benefit, and it's hurting the people. And since Samuel's sons were so corrupt, the Israelites wanted to have a say-so in who succeeded him as their leader. And that's when you get to verse 4 and 5 here of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, it's interesting because you've likely heard about Israel wanting to have a king before. You've, you've heard before that they wanted a king to be like the other nations. And yes, that is said here. But notice, that's not the only reason they've asked for a king. They've also asked for a king because they know Samuel's going to die one day and they don't want his sons to be in charge. Now, granted, they're using that scenario, but their real motivation is that desire to be like the world. But there are additional circumstances that are influencing their request, namely that of Samuel's old age and his corrupt sons. And so they come asking for a king now. Essentially, they've used the flaws of Samuel's sons as an opportunity to request a king. Their request broke Samuel's heart. But more importantly, it broke God's heart. Because if we return to the text, picking up in verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And despite his disappointment, God's going to grant their request. What's interesting is that God knew all along that they were going to ask for a king. Sometimes we forget that under Mosaic law, God gave them instructions for the day when they would ask for a king. Hold your spot here in 1 Samuel 8 because we'll be back, but skip backwards. Journey backwards to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's in verse 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy 17 that these words are spoken by Moses on behalf of God as the law is being laid out for the people. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. God says via Moses, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Did you catch that? God said, when you get to the land, you're going to ask for a king because you want to be like all the other nations. God knew exactly what they were going to do. God knew this day was coming. And so he put some parameters on it. There's, there's more 
uh, even after this that he says about kings when it comes to how many horses they accumulate and how many wives they have. There's other instructions here. But notice the one thing he says is, you're going to get into the land and you're going to want a king. And you know what? I'm going to let you have a king. God did not oppose a king when he laid out the law. And get this. This is something like 350 plus, 250 plus years before we get to King Saul. This is Moses speaking on behalf of God, and it's somewhere between 250 and 300 years before the last judge Samuel is gone. God knew this a long time in advance. God approved of this centuries in advance. So here's the thing. When they came asking for a king, it had already been approved with conditions. The biggest one being it has to be a member of Israel. So when God gave the law, he did so knowing that they would eventually ask for a king. They were no longer content to be led by men and women that God raised up to lead them. So now their request for a king, it's not wrong, but it certainly wasn't wanted by God. God wanted to stay their king and not have to have a proxy. So by requesting a king via God's representative, Samuel, the people followed the protocol outlined in Mosaic Law. Notice that. They come to Samuel, who's God's representative and spokesperson, and say, we want a king. They didn't go out and self-appoint somebody. Remember here in Deuteronomy, it's someone your God will choose. They went to God's representative for God to choose a king. They didn't just go pick somebody. It's not like when they tried to persuade Gideon to become a king. Which, by the way, does show that this isn't the first time they've pursued this. But it is the first time they've been successful. So they're, they're following the protocol, asking God to select a king for them. So even, but even though their request was uh, permissible, according to the law, it's still painful to God. Because as he told Samuel, their request was ultimately a rejection of him as their king. But he's not standing in the way of it. He's not opposing it because even though it hurt him, it wasn't wrong since he had included it in Mosaic Law. Now, he's going to pick their first king, and for the first king of Israel, God selected someone who met all the people's qualifications. We know him as King Saul. And I want you to think about how we're introduced to King Saul. When you think of King Saul, I'm certain the only thing that comes to mind is negative perceptions. But King Saul was great when he started. King Saul was an ideal king at the beginning. Let me explain what I mean. Saul seemed like the perfect king Number one, because of his appearance. Turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 
look at the first two verses of 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerar, son of Bekorath, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So our initial description of Saul is that he's from a wealthy family, and he's the most handsome and tallest guy in all the nation. Saul stood out so much physically that when Samuel presented him to the people in the 10th chapter and the 24th verse, he rhetorically asked this. He said, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Saul looked like a king. Taller than everyone, more handsome than everyone, and on top of that, he came from a wealthy family. He is the perfect guy to be king. But that's not the only reason Saul started off well. He not only looked the part, but initially he acted like it too, like a good king. Because Saul started off very humbly. Samuel had been divinely informed that Saul would be king back in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. So when he met him for the first time, he spoke very highly of him and honored him. In fact, if you look at verse 20, or excuse me, look at verse 19 of 1 Samuel chapter 9. Samuel spoke to Saul. Saul went out looking for his dad's donkeys, couldn't find them heard about Samuel, who was a, a seer, so he went, prophet. So he went to meet Samuel and see if Samuel could give him some direction. When Samuel met him, Samuel said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Samuel just told Saul, a guy searching for donkeys, that everything that's desirable in Israel is going to be for his family. And Saul answers, this is Saul's humility. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul's like, I'm from the smallest tribe, from the, from the smallest clan, from the smallest family. I'm a nobody. Why are you saying such nice things to me? There's humility in Saul right now. On top of this, when you get into the 10th chapter of 1 Samuel, and it's time for Saul to be presented to the people, Samuel gets all the people together to meet him, and they go through this elaborate ceremony where they're going to cast lots, and the lot's going to fall on a particular tribe, and that tribe's going to step forward. And then they're going to cast lots again, and from that tribe, a particular clan is going to step forward, and then so on until it gets down to the individual. And when it's time to reveal the individual, they can't find Saul anywhere. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 22 that the reason they can't find Samuel is because he was hiding among the baggage. All the people of Israel had gathered 
to meet with Samuel. They had traveled great distances. And Saul is hiding, literally hiding, in their luggage. Now, is it, is it because he's intimidated by the, the, the job requirements? Is he afraid of how the people will react? Is it personal humility? We don't know the reason. But at this stage in his life, there's no arrogance in Saul. No arrogance whatsoever. There is some degree of humility in this individual who's going to lose it one day. So Saul looks the part, or seems like the perfect candidate to be king, because he looks the part, and because he acts the part with his humility, and also because of his acumen. Acumen is the ability to make good judgments and quick decisions, and this unfolds in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you turn there, the first issue that Saul is going to have to deal with is a domestic issue. His, one of the towns of Israel is getting attacked by the Ammonites, being besieged by them. The Ammonites have come into Jabesh Gilead and told them, hey, surrender to us or we're going to attack. And the condition is, but here's the thing, if you surrender to us, we're going to gouge out one of your eyes. The citizens, this is one of the strangest military tactics I've ever heard of. The citizens of Jabesh Gilead then go, okay, hey, give us one week. If we can't get anybody to come help us, we'll turn ourselves in. And the Ammonites are all like, okay. The Ammonites are like, all right, go find some help. Go, go see if you can get somebody to come fight us. We'll give you one week to find somebody to fight us. What kind of strategy is that? Well, nobody in Israel wants to go help them. They're just sad for them. It's one of those situations where instead of helping, they're like, oh, we'll just cry for you. We'll feel bad for you, but we're not going to come out there and risk our lives. When Saul hears about it, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Here's the thing about Saul. Passionate. He cared about the people of that city. He wanted to do something about their situation. He wasn't going to stand idly by and let them be conquered. And as gross as his tactic was here, he figured out a way to motivate people to side with him. He recruited an army that didn't exist before. He led them into battle, and the text will go on to tell us that he defeated the Ammonites. Saul had the acumen to lead an army. He had the abilities necessary for a commander-in-chief. He had those credentials. Another reason why he seemed like the ideal candidate. And one last thing. Paul also seemed like the perfect king because of his mercy. Something that goes unnoticed very easily back in chapter 10 and verse 27, after Saul is presented to the people as the next king, there were some worthless fellows who said, how can this man save us? And they despised him, and they would not bring him a, a gift for his coronation. After he conquered those Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 11, 
his supporters wanted to take these worthless fellows and execute them. But Saul stopped his supporters. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul showed tremendous mercy to people who opposed him at this point in time. You're not going to see that later. He's going to try to kill every opponent he ever has. But right now, he knows something about mercy. See, when you look at Saul between um, his introduction to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9 until chapter 13, he's a great king. He's a great man. But things change in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So if you'll skip ahead over there, I want you to start seeing Saul's downfall. See, I think at this point in time, between chapter 9 and chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, God's like, all right, this is going to work out. In fact, in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, you know what Samuel does? Samuel gives his farewell message. He says, you know what, everything's going great with this Saul guy. I'm, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm done. I'm, I'm retiring. Saul's got this now. And so Samuel, the whole chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, is Samuel giving his farewell address. But then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul found himself preparing for war with the Philistines. The Philistines were actually retaliating against Israel because Saul's son Jonathan had successfully conquered a Philistine outpost that was located just a few miles from Israel's capital. At that time, Saul had a standing army of just 3,000 professional soldiers. And even though he managed to get a large contingent of volunteers to, uh, to join him, his army was vastly outnumbered. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5, that the Philistines were on the border of Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, and their troops are described as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And what's going to happen next is that Saul's going to have an impulsive decision. He's going to make a very impulsive decision that is going to hurt his standing with the Lord. Let's read the beginning of verse 6 of 1 Samuel 13. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. So here's the situation. The battle lines are drawn, but Saul knows that he could not successfully engage in war without first soliciting God's blessing through sacrifice. Samuel, who is the only one authorized to conduct such a sacrifice, was delayed in getting there. And Saul's little militia was getting nervous. They're vastly outnumbered by the Philistine army. The guy that's supposed to come and do the sacrifices so that God will bless their campaign, isn't there. 
And so they start scattering. That means that they were deserting him. Saul was already outnumbered before people started to desert him. To desert him. So when he saw people leaving, he got anxious and he got impatient. And in that state of anxiety, Saul decided that he couldn't wait on Samuel anymore. So he oversaw the offerings and the sacrifices himself, which was something he was not authorized to do since he was not a priest. Apparently Saul reasoned that it was better to do something the wrong way right now to make sure that it was done than to wait and do it the right way when it might be too late. And his disobedient decision, his impulsive decision, revealed to God that Saul's heart was not modeled after his own. Listen to Samuel's rebuke of Saul in verse 13 and 14. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commands of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul makes an impulsive decision. And he loses the kingdom. Seems like harsh consequences for a, a one-time event, right? If you keep reading Saul's story, though, you find out that this probably was not a one-time event. In chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, Saul's going to make a really rash vow and push his people too hard. It's almost going to result in him killing his beloved son, Jonathan. But the people actually defended Jonathan, protected him from Saul, and reasoned with Saul until Saul relented of his anger. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, let's talk about that for just a moment. Because this is going to be the climax for God. God has already said, I'm seeking someone else to take this throne. But then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and Saul's going, going to start rationalizing his disobedience. Saul's given a very specific assignment here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, which you can read in verse 2 and 3. He's instructed by God. God said, I have noted what Amalek did to the Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they, they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And this sounds so unloving of God. But you know what? That's not what Saul takes issue with. Not once does Saul say, hey man, I, I can't kill those children. I, I, I can't kill those women. Saul's not got an issue with the instruction. Saul doesn't have an issue with, 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 with God's directions here. But what ends up happening is that Saul doesn't follow through completely on the assignment. God grants Saul success against the Amalekites, and they manage to defeat them handily. But if you look at verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, you learn that Saul and the people spared Agag, who is the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. 
All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now, think about this for a moment. Saul has very clear, very specific directions. He's picking and choosing how he's going to follow these. And it's interesting that that last line, when it comes to the animals at least, they kept everything that was good, but everything that wasn't good they got rid of. That's how we do donations to church, isn't it? <laughs> Keep the good for yourself. Uh, th this isn't that important. I'll just get, it's, we can give it to the church. Saul's picking and choosing what he's going to obey and what he's not going to obey. Does that sound familiar? When Samuel showed up, Saul confidently, confidently boasted and declared that he had performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel was quick to point out the incorrectness of that statement by calling attention to the, the animals he saw and he heard. And it's at this point that Saul's error was exposed. He had not obeyed the voice of the Lord, as Samuel pointed out. But here's the thing about Saul. Saul cannot admit when he's wrong. Instead of admitting that, that he failed, he resorted to rationalizing his sin. Look at what he said in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 15. They, who's they? The people his soldiers, those who went with him into battle, they have brought them from the Amalekites, referring to the animals. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And when Samuel persisted that Saul had sinned, Saul responded in verse 20 and 21 saying this, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul's statement shows that he rationalized his disobedience by employing two different tactics that you and I employ today. Number one, Saul blamed somebody else. Did you notice that in those two passages? You go back to verse 15. They, not me, they have brought them from the Amalekites. In fact, here's what's interesting. In both verses we've just looked at, Saul uses third-person language when it comes to what was wrongfully done, and he uses first-person language regarding that which was done correctly. They brought them from the Amalekites. We devoted to destruction. They did that. We, which is a first-person pronoun, did this. You get to verse 20 and 21. I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, he's putting the blame on somebody else. That tells me Saul knew better. That tells me Saul knew that it was wrong to keep those animals. Now, obviously, he shows he, he, he was guilty of bringing Agag home. Saul knew what was wrong and what was right. 
So he passed the blame onto someone else. That was one of his, rational, his tactics for rationalizing what he did. And we do that too. But also notice this. In these passages, it shows us that Saul also justified his disobedience with a righteous purpose. He twice stated that the reason the animals were spared was so that they could be sacrificed to the Lord your God. We've got a good reason for not obeying the command. It's so that we can sacrifice and praise and worship God. We've got a good reason for disobeying, so therefore it's got to be justified. It's got to be right. You ever done that? Have you ever passed the blame? Have you ever tried to justify sin by giving it a righteous spin? If so, you're not unlike Saul here. And the end result for Saul is complete rejection by the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, Samuel, Samuel informed him that because he rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord rejected him from being king. And it's only then that Saul acknowledged his sin and said he did so because he feared the people and obeyed their voice. In other words, now he's saying, I did this because I'm a people pleaser. I did this because I wanted to keep them content. In other words, he's saying, I care more about what they think of me than what you think of me. You ever done that? You ever been guilty of caring more about what the world around you thinks than what the Lord thinks? So Saul is firmly rejected now. I think 1 Samuel chapter 15, he's already rejected in chapter 13. There's already going to be a new king, and his dynastic reign will not continue past him. There will be no descendant of his on the throne after chapter 13. But I think chapter 15 exists to show us that chapter 13 wasn't a fluke, wasn't a one-time event, that there was a pattern with Saul. And so at the end of chapter 15, look at what God told Samuel, verse 10. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. I regret that I made Saul king. Is there any other occasion you can remember God saying he regretted something? When he made man, when he sent the flood. That's how drastic a change of heart God has had towards Saul. I mean, you got to remember, the people didn't choose Saul. God chose Saul. But God chose somebody he knew the people would think is the ideal king because of his appearance, because of his attitude, because of his wealth, because of his acumen, because of all those traits. He knew the people would go, that's what a king should look like. And that spills over. Because we get to chapter 16, and it's under these circumstances that we get, finally get introduced to David. You know, most of the time when we think about David, 
we almost feel as though he appeared on the scene to fight Goliath, and that's where his story started. No, it started two chapters earlier than that. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're introduced to David out of the blue. God looks at Samuel. Samuel had not been around Saul since the events of 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're told at the end of that chapter that Samuel and Saul parted ways, basically. In fact, we're told that Samuel never saw Saul again. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and verse 1, the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I, I think that's an important phrase. It's not, I have provided for the people a king among his sons. It's not, I have provided for the nation a king from among his sons. I've provided for myself. This isn't a choice to please the people. This is a choice to please himself. It's with Saul, God chose somebody that the people would appreciate as a king. Now he's choosing somebody that he's going to appreciate as a king. And Samuel's text is simple. All he's got to do is go to Jesse's house and anoint the one that God tells him to anoint. But you, if you read the next couple of verses, you see that Samuel's kind of nervous about it. Saul knows he's getting replaced. You, you realize that. Saul had been told that the Lord has rejected you and he's going to find somebody else. So Saul lives every day with the recognition Someday, somebody else is coming to take that throne. It makes him very paranoid throughout his life. So more than likely, Samuel is followed by one of Saul's men. It's not said in Scripture. It's not in the text. But I imagine that somebody like Saul would have eyes on Samuel everywhere he goes to see if he can predict who that next one's going to be. Because Samuel's the only one that can anoint a new king. That's why Samuel's nervous. And God gives him a spiritual purpose for going to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, gives him a spiritual cover almost, not in a lying sense, not in a deceptive sense, but gives him another reason to go to Bethlehem so that Saul wouldn't be suspicious. And when there, Samuel gets Jesse's family together and begins examining the candidates from among Jesse's sons. Let's pick up the reading of verse 6. When they came that is, Jesse's sons, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Eliab was Jesse's oldest son. God said no. In verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab, his second oldest, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema, his third oldest, pass by. And Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Seven sons, and not one of them are picked. Samuel thought when he first saw Eliab, this is the guy. You know why? Because Eliab, like Saul, looked the part. In fact, Eliab and Abinadab and Shema, they all were in Saul's army. You can get to the very next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 
when Saul's army is having to be gathered, these three guys are there. David will come visit them, but these guys are enlisted in the army. They're soldiers like Saul. They look the part. They act the part. And Samuel's still buying into the mentality that God was trying to change. That it's not about looking at the outside. It's not about the appearance. It's not about the things you think matter. There's a different standard going on. And isn't it fascinating that even Jesse didn't think David was worthy of being here that day? David's the youngest, so I get it. The assumption is that one of the older sons would be chosen first because they're going to be wiser and older and more mature. But if you're a descendant of Abraham's family, at some point you should understand that the youngest gets chosen a lot. Isaac was the youngest in comparison to Ishmael. Jacob was the youngest in comparison to uh, Esau. Joseph was the youngest in comparison to 11 or 10 other brothers. There's something about the youngest to God, which is why I'm glad I'm the youngest. But Jesse didn't think David was worthy, was, was anointing king candidate material. And Samuel has to ask him, are, are all your sons here? And Jesse has to admit there's one not there. It's the youngest. He's out with the sheep. I mean, it's not even like Je David wasn't even allowed in the house for this whole thing. David stuck out in the field. And they have to wait on him to come in. Can you imagine? David's coming in smelling like a sheep. David probably isn't going to have time to get cleaned up, to get a meal, to fix his hair, change his clothes, none of that. He's going to come in and Jesse's immediately going to know. And on the surface, there's nothing about David that would impress anybody. He was the opposite of Saul in that regard. The description we have of him is that he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and handsome. Now, I know you hear that, and you think, well, that sounds good. All those descriptors in, are intended to speak to his youthfulness and his healthiness. Ruddy has to do with complexion. Bright eyes, youthfulness. Handsome means he just didn't look bad. Compare it to how Saul's described. The most handsome in all the land and the tallest in all the land. David didn't get those kind of descriptions. There's nothing about him that on the surface you go, that's got to be the guy. But he is. And it's all because of this verse. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, the Lord told Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the basis of this study. That's our objective for the rest of this quarter. To look at David and try to see him with God's eyes. This, this man who's going to become king and going to make a lot of mistakes, 
as I said at the outset, he's, he's associated with the most notorious sin in all of Scripture. If you were to Google David and, after you get past Harry and David, and Dave and Busters, you get David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. And here's a guy whose own decisions killed 70,000 of his people, whose own decisions affected the life of Uzzah, whose own decisions influenced his children to think that they were above the law at some point in time. Here's a guy who made some horrible mistakes, got his own family captured by an enemy nation. All of that stuff we'll be talking about in the next few weeks. But despite all those mistakes, God still looked at this guy's heart and said, that's my man. So we're going to try to spend this time unpacking David's heart. Because if there's anything I ever want God to say about me, I want him to say, that's a man after my own heart. I hope you want that too, unless you're a woman. And then I hope you want to hear a woman after my own heart. So I hope you'll stay with us this quarter as we investigate the life of David. But today, this evening, the question you need to ask yourself is right now, as God is able to look at my heart, does he see a man or a woman after his? Would God choose me under the same circumstances as David if I were a candidate? Because it's not about the outward appearance. It's about the heart. And all of us should desire to be imitators of God, as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says. So we're going to spend these weeks investigating the life of David, investigating what made him a man after God's own heart. But the rest is to be continued. Oh, wait, wait, we're not doing that study anymore. But we'll pick up with it next week as we continue looking at the life of David. Sorry, six months of to be continued? Sorry, I had to, I had to throw that bone to, to Ben. I tell you what, will you close out with me in a word of prayer as we uh, end our time of study tonight? Lord God in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these individuals that you have told us about in your word that we can look at and learn from. And Lord, David is such a unique individual in that you've called him a man after your own heart. Help us in the weeks to come to look at his life and unveil those things that you saw. Help us to see those very same things, not so we can esteem him, but so that we can emulate it. So that we can also be men and women after your own heart. Lord, help us to not focus on the outward appearance, but to focus on what matters to you. Help us to live that out. Help us to make you proud. We love you, Lord, and it is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.